Hey there, you're with Disembodied Podcast. This is Evie Escher. This week's guest is Constantine Maroon. He is a passionate advocate of personal growth, self-discovery, and professional development. He's worked as a senior account technology strategist with Microsoft, where he successfully developed and executed digital transformation strategies for customers, maximizing ROI of their technology investments and ensuring year-over-year growth. Sophisticated stuff. But more recently, his spiritual journey took him from being a fear-ridden guy, hiding his authentic self, to embracing vulnerability and authenticity. He's figured out how self-discovery can unlock personal and professional success. He is a fellow podcaster. Yay! Unleash Thyself is his own version of a spiritually inclined and personal growth field podcast, so check it out. So we're going to talk about where he came from, Romania, where he is now, Nova Scotia, and a plant medicine retreat that changed his life. Constantine will give us the whole account of his ayahuasca and San Pedro cactus experience, the transformations he underwent, and the integration he had to make when he returned to his normal life again. If you're thinking of trying either of those plant medicines, his experience might be a good starting place for you to make up your own mind. By the way, if you hear little crickets chirping here and there, it's actually my birds exercising their will to be heard on the podcast. They're in another room when I'm podcasting, but they refuse to be silent, especially when they've chewed through their millet treats. (laughs) Sit tight. Here we go. Constantine, welcome to Disembodied Podcast. It's great to have you. It's a pleasure to be here, Evie, and thank you so much for having me here. I want to say hello to the audience, and I cannot wait to have a beautiful conversation. Yeah, you are most welcome to be here. I mean, I love that you're from Romania originally. That excites me right there. I have never been to that country, spent some time in Europe, but never really in Eastern Europe. So can you tell me, how did you grow up there? Did you have any type of spiritual upbringing at all? Yeah, that's a great question, Evie, and Romania is a beautiful country. I love the fact that I grew up there and I look forward to going back whenever I can. And I would say that, yes, most Europeans, especially Eastern Europeans, they are tied to some religion. And in Romania, the predominant religion is Orthodox, Christian Orthodox. And I grew up the same. I was an Orthodox Christian for most of my young life. Now, we weren't practicing heavily, but we would go to church at least monthly, if not more often. And of course, celebrate Christmas and Easter, and then there would be bigger events. And of course, like in in many other cultures, and I was born in the 80s, religion and the church had a big role to play. And the communist Romania at the time was no different. So communism lasted until the 90s, right, in Romania? Exactly. 89 is kind of when it fell, but it was December of 89, moving into 90. And I was about seven years old, almost, well, six and a half, when... The communist fell, so I don't have a lot of memories of how it was to be in the communist era, but I do know it was a time of scarcity, a time of poverty, a time of fear. And my parents and my grandparents raised me. They were doing a really good job of trying to shield me from all the external things that were happening. But as you and I know, energy is everywhere, and 
even though we may not see it, we'll feel it. And everything that they were going through were being sent down to me. And of course, the teachers, the people that I would play with and so on. Yeah, it's interesting because I thought most communist countries tried to do away with religion, right? You're right. In some parts, they did, but not in Romania. And I grew up in a one of the bigger cities on the border or close to the border of Hungary and Serbia. And religion was definitely a big part of many people's lives. And I would occasionally travel to the villages where my family had relatives. And again, big events happening around any of the major religious events like Christmas or Easter mm-hmm. back then. So it wasn't, at least in the years I was alive, and at least when my parents were alive as well, it was a big influence. Church had a big influence on, on everything. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think people just probably thought, you know, as long as they weren't being persecuted for what they were doing, they could just carry on doing whatever they wanted. And it's hard to control an entire country, I think. It's really hard to stop people from doing everything that they want to do. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, nowadays it seems to be a bit easier with social media and news and everything else that can be controlled. But yes, I agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, we as human beings have done or tried at least so hard to control every aspect of our lives, which meant controlling others as well. And you're absolutely right. We we see it everywhere. And I saw it back then. I see it now. Not much has changed, right? I changed continents. I changed countries. And I still see the same type of behavior, maybe showing up differently. Well, yeah, humanity kind of has some slow progress in certain respects. So tell me a little bit about the um, Romani culture. Could you speak to that at all in Romania? Yeah, speak a bit to it. I mean, they were part of what I grew up as well. They had communities. They usually have a bad reputation because they will be um, seen as people that steal, as people that are beggars in the streets. Um, that do some of the more evil things. But there's a lot of beauty in the culture as well, like any other culture. Of course, they have their good and the negatives. And again, as a society everywhere, we really like to emphasize the negatives of anything. And sure, as uh, Romania became a democratic country, the borders opened up, which meant that a lot of Romanian people, including the Romani, were able to move across borders a lot more easily. And as they moved, the more opportunity came up, both for good and bad things. And that's how the stigma came about with the Romani culture that, you know, you will see them in Italy or Spain or other countries where there will be the beggars on the streets, the people that engage in small theft or scams of any sorts and whatnot. But from what I've seen, and I wasn't part of that culture, but they had beautiful traditions. They were good people at heart, right? Nomadic people, but good people. And that's what I remember them to be. Now, I do know growing up, I was told to be wary of them. I was told to be careful, right, when I when I encountered them. But I do recall, now that we I think about it, I used to play, well, I still play a lot of soccer, football. And I would always have, a, you know, I'll go grab friends to play. And we had quite a few Romani people that we would play with. And I remember there was a stigma for sure from my grandparents, from people in my immediate network, let's say, so parents of other kids were like, oh, you shouldn't play with those kids because they are from the Romani clan and it's not safe, right? But we as kids don't care, right? Because we don't have that divisive aspect in us just yet that comes down from culture, that comes down from the people we surround ourselves with. Not by choice, I mean, necessarily by choice because our parents, our teachers, our friends. 
Yeah, it's kind of hard to break down those um, prejudices. They're, I'm sure they've been around for so many hundreds of years that it's, it's hard to break it down. It's hard to break down in the moment, and it's hard to break down if you're not aware of what's going on, the damage it does, and how much it prevents you from becoming the best version of yourself. And I was no different. And when I realized that I had so many learned behaviors to work through from my early childhood that I wasn't even necessarily aware of, then my eyes opened up and I'm like, you know what? I don't believe that I want to be discriminatory against anyone based on their race, sex, color, you name it. Because in the end of the day, we are all human beings. We're just having a beautiful experience here on earth. We should embrace our diversity instead of hating on it. Yeah, absolutely. So you're in Canada now. You must actually miss some things about Romania, I would think, because Canada is just a totally, it's North America. It's totally different. The culture's probably, are you in Toronto or a big city? I was in Toronto for 17 years and then I moved to the East Coast, smaller city in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So I've been here for about six years now. Oh, very cool. Nova Scotia. That's an interesting place, actually. Oh, it's so beautiful. Not very populated. Like This entire East Coast is maybe a couple of million people spread across a vast amount of land. For example, I'm in the suburbs, but I have the forest and lakes within five-minute walks. So I could go on my lunch break and I could have a walk in the forest. Or I could actually just go jump in the lake to cool off if I wanted to. So that aspect is beautiful, right? The people are very nice. To answer your question, Romania and Canada or Europe and North America are very, very different. The number one thing that most people will tell you that they miss when they leave Europe or other parts of the world is the food. For some reason, the food doesn't taste the same in North America as it does in Europe or even other parts of the world like Asia and South America. So that's a big one. Of course, uh, in the beginning when I was 17 moving here, I left behind all my friends, everything I knew. So I missed that for a very long time. Now, being much older, having formed relationships here and realizing that with the internet, we can continue fostering relationships across the globe, doesn't matter where people are, that part is not as big of a deal. But I would imagine anyone that's moving by choice or otherwise to a new country, to a new continent, is going to suffer with a bit of homesickness when it comes to maybe the practices, the family gatherings, the friendship gatherings, the friends themselves, right, the food, uh, the cultural norms, all those are going to play a factor. And they, they did for me and my family as well. Yeah, I can imagine. What I've always heard about Romania is that there's a communal atmosphere, I guess, there, probably more so than in North America. Absolutely. That's actually a great point to bring up because at least I left Romania in 2000, right? So that's the year I left. But you're absolutely right. There are more tight-knit communities. Now, this was also before the internet really took off. So I'm not sure how it transformed now because I'm sure from what I've seen and when I travel back, there are more pockets now that are less communal. But you're absolutely right. I, I saw it in South America. I saw it in Europe, in many parts of Europe where the nuclear family, the friendships are much stronger and wider. You usually spend time with a lot more people than you would in North America. So your circle of friends, circle of relatives, circle of anyone you surround yourself with is, is much larger, which means you now have access to more connections that can maybe help you in your professional life or personal life, but also be able to foster that idea of community tribe where you can feel at home. What I realized in North America is that it drives us to be a lot more independent and be on our own. And that kind of goes against the grain of us human beings that we 
actually thrive much better when we are working together towards a common goal, spending time, quality time together, sharing stories, enjoying a meal, helping each other out, you name it. Yeah, it's that support system. Um, it's such a critical thing for most people to feel better about their lives, to have that network of people, you know, whether it's at work or home or in your neighborhood that are just like they're regulars, they're fixtures in your life. Exactly. And what I've realized on my journey is that, again, when you're talking about especially corporate culture in North America, and I was chasing the American dream for a very long time as well, acquired that. I realized it wasn't making me any happier. In fact, <laughs> more miserable. But well, at least what I've seen being promoted is that you have to essentially climb over everyone else, screw as many people as you can on the way there, and just go, go for yourself. But I doubt that anyone is actually happy or joyful when they get to the top, when they actually trampled over others to get there. And not only that, but once you get there, at least in my case, in many people I've worked with and I've connected with, it's the same feeling. Like money won't bring you the joy and fulfillment and happiness you think it will bring you until you get there and you see it for yourself. But if you do things that come from your heart, if you do things that matter to you, and then money will follow anyway, like any other resource, like more people in your life, quality people, right? Quality relationships and so on. Yeah, I think the more people you have to trample over to get what you want, you have to expect that the next wave is going to trample over you as well. Right. Yeah. That's what happens. Well, that's a great point to bring up, uh, Evie. And then the second part of that is if you are in the mindset of, well, you need to fight for yourself only and no one else, you have to care about yourself and no one else, you're not going to trust people that want to help you or that want to help others because you're going to always think like, what's the motive here? What's what's the reason they're, they're being nice? What's the reason they're doing that? And I'm not. Yeah, right. you're suspicious of everybody, basically. Exactly, right? So then you end up living a life filled with friends, I put quotations mark here, acquaintances, people you think you're close with, but you're not. And I'll give you an example that hits really close to home for me. I moved to Halifax about, like I mentioned, six years ago now. And I'm an outgoing person. I play soccer, I go on hikes, I play board games. So when I moved here, I knew no one. So I started hanging out with people that shared hobbies with me, like soccer and, of course, board games and hiking. And I made friendships along the way. Okay, perfect. So I have friends, dozens, not a big deal. However, last year when I went to Ecuador on one of my big spiritual awakening trips, I met like-minded individuals that were on their own path to becoming the best version of themselves, to enlighten themselves, to go on a spiritual path. And I formed such deep connections with at least a dozen of them that a year later, despite them being in the States, Australia, Europe, Asia, we stay connected every day. We have deep conversations and we are, I could consider them some of my best friends. Meanwhile, the people I met in Halifax, where I am right now, amazing people, but I cannot say I have the same type of connection despite spending five, six years together because it feels more superficial. You may ask me, how am I? I can ask you how you are. And it kind of stops there. You cannot go deep and talk about your emotions, your mental health, really it doesn't get very deep because people don't have, or they're not fostering the same type of relationships. And if you're not on the same path, it's very hard to align with people. Yeah, sure, we share a hobby together, but it doesn't get deeper than that. Yeah, I feel that way most of the time. I think California, I'm in California, so it's kind of a superficial culture anyway. It's very much about status and looking like you have more status than you do, (laughs) (laughs) typically. 
And, you know, I grew up here. Okay. I can't really say that, oh, it's culture shock and, you know, I should leave or whatever. I did grow up here, but I was always kind of critical of it. And I see it now for what it is. It is a good place to live. It's got a great climate. There are great, like educated, sophisticated people that you can have great conversations with, intelligent conversations with, but you also have to know that there are limitations and it's not always going to be a deep relationship. It's very often more of a superficial relationship. And every European I've ever met that's come over here has said the same thing. They're like, oh, you know, you can meet people here much more readily than you can say in Germany or some other countries, but you have that sticking point where you just don't feel like you're really connected to them in a way. It's just more of a superficial thing. And, you know, I've even noticed like when I've moved from one community to another, the people from the community I was in before, and it's not that far away maybe, but they just don't stay in touch because maybe they don't want to drive to where I am. And it gets to be sort of like a hassle to stay friends with people. And that's a weird thing. It's kind of sad. And you know what? You bring such a great point. I moved from Toronto, well, outside of Toronto to here. I had what I considered to be hundreds of friends, honestly, because I was running a soccer club, lots of people. I would hang out with so many people across my hobbies, everything else. And like in your experience, I moved farther away, but people stopped responding, stopped reaching out. It fizzled away. And that makes sense. If your connection is superficial, it's going to fizzle much faster if you're not in proximity of each other, if you don't continue sharing in those hobbies or habits together. The people that I stayed in touch with are those that I connected more on a spiritual level, emotional level, and mental level. While I form relationships in Ontario would be coworkers, some people I used to play soccer with there, or even went to school with. And those relationships have gotten much, much stronger as a result of me going on this path, where I'm actually now much more vulnerable and authentic than I ever was. In fact, I would consider myself to be as authentic as I can possibly be. This is the real me now. In the past, I would hide who the real me was because of fear of judgment, of fear of rejection, of fear of not being included. And that meant that the type of people I would attract or I would associate myself with would not be sustainable for the long term. And what I realized that once I became vulnerable and authentic, Yeah, some people disappeared from my life because they no longer felt like they wanted to be friends with me. But a lot more people came into my life and a lot more quality friendships, I would say. Well, that's heartening that it can work out that way in your case for the better. But explain to me a little about your spiritual awakening that you had a Mm. few years ago. This happened in Canada, right? It did. So actually, it started when I was about 25. So if we look at my childhood, I was... Slightly religious. I wouldn't say we're overly religious. We go to church, as I said, a few times a year, maybe once a month at most. But when we moved to Canada, that kind of stopped. We had some churches, my parents would continue going, but they weren't forcing us to follow. And I would consider myself at that stage, so let's say between 17 and 25 agnostic. That's kind of what I associated with. Then my there was a stage when my ex-wife at the time and my brother, they were both growing through depression, anxiety, and therapists and pills and nothing was really working. So my mother found an alternative therapist, a holistic therapist. And as part of helping my ex-wife and my brother, we had to all go have a couple of sessions with this lady. And all she needed was our date of birth and our name. And then she would draw up a chart and then she would tell us what gifts and tools and challenges we come into this world with and she would explain a few more things. And I was one of the first people to attend the session. 
And the amount of information she was able to know about me that no one else knew, and even I had a hard time accepting in the, in the moment, to me, to my mathematical analytical mind was, wow, like how can so much information be held in a name and, and a date of birth? And that's it. And the reason I say it is because he, he talked about my relationship with my mother, where he would be flourishing and where he would have issues. And he was very, very accurate. So the way I see it now is the more coincidences I've seen like that, I mean, there must be some truth behind it. So that kind of opened my mind to the possibility of more. But keep in mind, I mentioned that when I was younger, I surrounded myself with people based on my own insecurities, based on my own preconceived ideas. So people that weren't necessarily supportive of this type of spiritual path. And I wasn't that advanced in researching on the internet and having people to talk to. So even though I found that exciting and possibly something I would be interested in, it kind of went into the back of my mind. So I said that was kind of my first spiritual awakening. The universe tried, but I was very resistant. Fast forward to a time when I had to move to Halifax, made a big change in my life. I decided to actually reach out to this lady and have some sessions with her to truly understand myself better because I said, you know what? It's time for me to do some work on myself. And that's when the second phase started. This was about seven years ago now. And the big awakening moment was last year when I went to Ecuador. So I'll pause there to see if you have any questions, if you want me to go deeper into any of those areas. Before you went to Ecuador, did you pick up any practices that were helping you spiritually at home, maybe? Yeah, so some practices I picked up, I would say, along the years, are practices of meditation and meditation in nature, meditation with uh, while walking my dogs, while resting at home, breathing exercise. So those are practices that allowed me to go deeper within myself. I wasn't necessarily following any specific type of meditation. In my mind, meditation is, is anything that I do that allows me to sit with myself, allows me to either work on an emotion or a feeling, or just clear my mind and observe as thoughts go by. Since then, of course, I've, I've uh, practiced a lot more formal styles of meditation and other, other things, but that was in, in ahead of that experience. Then there was also different practices of talking to myself or allowing emotions again to come up and, and letting them surface up. But I wasn't, again, very good at understanding that emotions don't need to be buried deep down. They have to be allowed to come up, express themselves, and for me to accept, heal, love, or parts of me. But those are some of the things I did initially in my in my journey. Did other people notice this, like a, a change in you? Yes. In the process of moving here and once I moved here. So my move to Halifax coincided with my separation from my ex-wife. We're still very good friends. She went on her own spiritual journey and I went on mine and we stayed in touch. And she noticed a lot of changes in me. I noticed a lot of changes in her. My parents did to some degree as well. Some of my friends did as well. But the biggest changes were really noticed until I would say 2022 in the in the spring last year after I came back from Ecuador. Okay, so let's get into Ecuador because um, <laughs> first of all, why did you choose? It was like a plant medicine retreat. Is that what it was? It was. So I'll uh, I'll give you a bit of the backstory because I think that's actually a big part of my spiritual awakening. So. Ayahuasca, a plant medicine that's found in the Amazonian jungle, has been used by tribes in the Amazon jungle across any of the countries you look for thousands of years. And it's a spiritual medicine, a psychedelic, if you may, that allows you to connect to God, to your higher self, to the universe, whatever you believe in. 
And it gives you, the way I see it, not necessarily a shortcut, but a path to understanding yourself better, a path to understanding the universe and everything else around us. I did a lot of research into ayahuasca as a plant medicine because I should preface the fact that I've never been drunk in my life. I have the occasional drink, but I never had any inclination to, to get drunk, nor have I done any drugs. So for me to do something where I lose control, what I, let's let's call it perhaps a drug or a plant medicine, that was very outside of my comfort zone. So I wanted to do research, I wanted to understand. But here's why I want to do all of that is because I heard what they, they call the calling of Mother Ayahuasca. So maybe a decade before I went on this journey, I had a couple of friends that they were talking about the medicine when it kind of first surfaced up on, on the Western side. And at the time I was like, no, I'm never going to do that. And that was it. I never really looked into it. It's just an idea that came up. But then fast forward, it was about 2000, right before the pandemic. So I want to say 2017, I wake up one morning and I have this strong feeling that I need to go do ayahuasca. And it was out of the blue because I was just going through the motions, working for Microsoft, just <laughs> enjoying my life, not really doing any spiritual work or any deep spiritual work. And I kind of felt like, okay, that's weird. I'm going to ignore it. But then <laughs> feeling grew and grew and grew, right? Of course, the pandemic hit, and I was in the process of learning about it and deciding, and I the borders closed, so I couldn't do anything about it. But then as the borders opened up, I had done so much research. Honestly, I spent thousands of hours reading, watching, or listening to anything related to ayahuasca, from the science behind it to the experiences people have to what you should do before because there's a special diet you should go on, what you do during and what you do after and so on and so forth. So I was so prepared with all this material. And then when the borders opened up, I booked as soon as I could. And actually, I, it was nine months out from when I booked when I had to go on, when I had a chance to go on the trip. So how did you get into this? I mean, did they prepare you when you got there, like how they're going to administer this drug to you and what you're going to feel? And did it make you sick or? Yes, that, those are all great questions. And um, so the way that it treat worked is that you have 12 days and in those 12 days, you have five plant medicine journeys. Now there were two plant medicine I, I had a chance to work with. One was ayahuasca and the other one was called St. Pedro. Ayahuasca is essentially a vine that grows in the jungle. I believe they use the root and the vine itself to make the liquid that you drink. And then St. Pedro is a cactus and it grows also in, in that area. And it's a different type of medicine. And there were, again, five ceremonies spread out over 12 days. And the first one would be on the second day I would arrive there. And what I remember is that I got there on my first day and I could actually already feel the energies of the place I was in. I could feel different. I felt lighter. I felt more connected. I felt, I felt more joy than I ever felt in a very long time because I was coming off the back of the pandemic like everyone else. I was working long hours. I was feeling burnt out, not in a good place. But then a couple of things happened that took me for a loop. It's the idea that people started to arrive. And some people were there before I got there. Some people came after. But as I would meet different people, introduce myself, I couldn't stop feeling like, oh, I know this person. And it didn't happen with just one person. It happened with at least a dozen people. It felt like I knew them from somewhere, yet I've never met any of them in my life. And as I mentioned, they were from all over the world, all ages. I believe the youngest was 18 at the time, and the oldest was like 75. So I met all these amazing people with all different stories and people from the tech world, like myself, people from blue-collar jobs, white-collar jobs, people that 
were just in school or retired, whatever the case. It was such a nice, beautiful range of people. And of course, the people running the retreat, plus the shamans, had a chat with us the first day, well, actually multiple, to tell us how the medicine will work, what are the guidelines, because it's a very sacred medicine. There's a process behind how it runs. So we had to be very respectful to the shamans because they were indigenous shamans, as well as to the plant medicine itself and the ceremony. Because the ceremony itself is all about giving thanks to Mother Earth, to Mother Ayahuasca, to the fire, to the spirits, to everyone, because they're giving us this gift of being able to connect with them. You did five different journeys, right? What was the first journey like? What happened to you? So I didn't know what to expect. And he did ask if the plant medicine makes you sick. Ayahuasca does make you a bit more incapacitated, so you'll be a bit more wobbly walking. And it also has an element of purging to it. So purging, according to the shamans and um, everything that was told to us and everything I understand now is, is the idea of eliminating energies that are no longer good for you. So eliminating everything that's negative. And purging can happen in many different ways. The most common one is purging through vomit, right? So you throw up, purging through going to the washroom, and also purging through yawning or laughing or crying. So those are all things you one would do to eliminate. And you don't necessarily have control over it. The way you need to purge is the way you need to purge. The first ceremony was ayahuasca and ayahuasca only. And I didn't know what to expect. With any plant medicine that you do, regardless of it being ayahuasca, St. Pedro, mushrooms, anything else someone does, if it's a spiritual journey, they always advise you to have an intention going in. And my intention was... At the time, I mean, there were a couple of intentions, but the big one was to just see what I need to see. But I also asked the plant medicine to be gentle with me. And that was something that the shamans advised us, where you can actually ask the plant medicine to be gentle with you or to go as hard as it needs to go. And honestly, when I asked it to be gentle, I didn't know what to expect, but it was gentle with me throughout the process. Mind you, the way I understand it now is that when you work with plant medicine or you do your own spiritual work to get to the same destination, it doesn't matter really what you want. It's more of what you need. And sometimes we don't know what we need to get to what we want. So the plant medicine may clear out some your vessel. It may, it may show you different things. Okay. So here's a quick question. When you're asking the plant medicine to be gentle with you, who is in control of that? Are you? Do you think it's a spirit that's in control of it? Or do you think it's the actual spirit of the plant? Is it outside of the plant or is it in the plant? That's a great question. And based on my understanding right now, I think it's everything. You are in control of it. And then it's also the plan, the universe, God, because at the end of the day, the way I see now, we're all the same thing, having different experiences. So at the end of the day, my higher self, the universe, the plant, spirit, all of them are are controlling parts of it. (laughs) Okay. So was it the sickness part of it? Was it really bad or just kind of pretty easy to get through? Do you think? So, I mean, let me preface with this. There were about 25 people in the Maloka, which is kind of like a big gazebo in which the ceremony took place. And what's important to note as well, which I think you'll find exciting and the guests will as well, is that in Western medicine, if I go to my doctor and they give me a pill, I'm taking it, but they're not taking it. The doctor is not taking it. With the shamans, when we did the ceremony, this was news to me. I didn't realize this. They all take the medicine with us. So they're conducting the ceremony while being on the medicine. And they're actually the first to take the medicine. Well, some of them to show you that it's safe. 
and everyone else takes it, then the, 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 the head shaman takes it as well. So everyone will get sick in their own way. So I saw some people that got very sick and they were purging a lot by vomit. Personally, I had to go to the washroom a lot, so multiple times. That was my way of purging, at least in the first ceremony. And everyone is a bit different. And I was actually, to be honest, always worried about the purging initially. But then I realized that it's part of the journey and I don't need to control every facet of it. So I let, let it go and I said, whatever happens, happens. There were people there to help you. So what the retreat and any reputable place will have, they will have helpers. So when I had to go to the washroom, I'll put my hand up, someone will come, will walk me to the washroom. If you know everyone had a bucket, so if you throw up, they will come and replace the bucket for you. So you are taken care of. You just had to worry about being in your journey, worrying about your experience, and going as deep or as shallow as you want. Now, one thing I should preface is the shamans, before we took the first cup of the medicine, they said, once the journey starts, no one can stop it. So to your question of control from before, it's like, yeah, you put your intention, you ask it to be gentle, but you're kind of washing your hands away and saying, okay, well, do whatever now. I told you what I want, but you show me what I need to see. I mean, were you like struck with paranoia once you drank the cup and started to feel a little, you know, like your stomach wasn't doing too well? Did you start to think, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? No, absolutely not actually. Interesting enough, no. And I, I believe there's multiple reasons why that was the case. I've come to understand that with plant medicine and any, any spiritual work you do, the setting and the people you surround yourself with are very, very important. So because I was in a place filled with love, in a place where everyone came for healing, came to understand themselves better, the shamans were really, really good. The people working there were really, really good. It was a place filled with positive energy. And I couldn't stop feeling it as well, which meant that there wasn't enough room for me to be paranoid or to be worried. Sure, there were small worries that would creep up every now and then, but they wouldn't last very long. And how active a role did the shamans play? Because, you know, some people describe ayahuasca trips as like, you're kind of on your own, realizing your own things. but it almost sounds like these people facilitating, were they talking to you while you were doing this? Were they leading you to any headspace that you wouldn't have gotten to on your own? Yeah, so the, the role of a shaman is actually crucial in, this, in these uh, journeys. And I've only really realized that after experiencing myself and seeing what they were doing around me. So as I mentioned, about 25 of us, there was the head shaman, and then there was what they would call a firekeeper. Because in the Ecuadorian traditions, at least, fire plays a big role into the ceremonies. For example, if you were to go to Peru and do ayahuasca, the fire doesn't play as big of a role. So there is a couple of different nuances between different uh, tribes and indigenous groups on how the plant medicine journeys happen. But it always starts with giving gratitude and being thankful, and there's different stages to to the ceremonies. And you are offered medicine on three different occasions. So it's the first time you take it, and there's a whole ceremony around that. Then it's it's a time of peace and quiet because it takes about half an hour to 45 minutes for it to kick in. And then that's the time when the fire is allowed to go fairly dim. It's dark because you're doing it at night. It would be like 8 p.m. by now. And that part was really interesting to me because it's so quiet. All you hear are the animals and the birds and the insects around you. And then all of a sudden, you start hearing some people start to throw up, right? And then... Because mine didn't kick in as fast as others. Yes, that's a time when I got a bit more worried. And I said, you know what? Ugh, what's going to happen? But I said, no, okay, I'm waiting for it. It's going to happen. And then the shamans, after that silence of 30, 45 minutes, 
they start playing Icarus, which are songs. So they have drums and they have different instruments. And of course, they use their voice. And I'll tell you, those are some of the most amazing and beautiful songs you can ever hear, especially when you're in the space where it connects you. And the songs, the way I understand it now is the songs facilitate your connection to your higher self, to God, to the universe, to the plant medicine. And furthermore, the role of the shaman there is as a gatekeeper to also help negative spirits to stay away from you and positive spirits to come in. And I've seen instances where someone will have a really tough journey next to me and you will see the shaman go close and they will take different herbs and they will do some incantations and different songs. And all of a sudden you see a transformation in the person. They will no longer have a tough journey. There was an example where a lady had a massive migraine, couldn't do anything about it, only was interfering with the, with the journey. Shaman went over again with some herbs, some incantations, migraine gone instantly as he was doing that, right? So their job there is not only to facilitate the beautiful ceremony, but also to guide you on this path and bring you back to yourself. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that they intervene like that because there's nothing worse than a bad trip that goes on for hours and hours, you know? I mean, that would be like the worst. Exactly. It would be. And that's why I say the the setting and the people you surround are so important because I had the opportunity to partake in ayahuasca with other plant medicines in North America, but it wouldn't be with traditional shamans. It wouldn't be on sacred ground where these were done and properly prepared, right? And I would be worried of that person from a spiritual perspective because now I have a much better understanding of what happens on a journey when you open portals and you start having all these energies come in and go out, right? Like you need someone to help you that actually knows what they're doing because I don't, and most people don't either. Do you think that you connected yourself with the spirit world in a way that you like could speak to spirits or, you know, did you feel like you had that type of connection? Absolutely. So my, my first journey wasn't, again, I asked it to be gentle was fairly light. There were three big parts that I remember profoundly. And one of them is one of the connection here. It actually happened like 10 times during uh, the few hours of the ceremony I, I, I partook in. And it was this idea that Mother Ayahuasca, I would see it as a spirit, I was in the universe. There was a big door in front of me and I would talk to Mother Ayahuasca. Mother Ayahuasca would say, hey, it's time to go to this door. And I'll be all excited. I would want to go through the door. And as I grabbed the handle to go through, my ego would be like, no, we're not doing this. And it would stop. Like the vision, my, I would disconnect from my connection to spirit, let's say. And that happened 10 times or so in that night. And I never, I was never able to break through that in the first ceremony. But of course, as the ceremonies progressed, as I continued doing work on myself in between the ceremonies, I was able to eventually get through that. And did the shamans help you with that? Or did you kind of do it yourself? It's a combination of shamans and other spiritual guides and healers, uh, this retreat. So this retreat, like many others, because they don't make a whole lot of money. They have a lot of volunteers working there. And some of these volunteers are spiritual workers, spiritual healers, spiritual guides of sort. And there were a, a bunch of them that helped. That's what I mean by surrounding yourself with an amazing community. I mean, they were there to help night and day. And there was a shaman, a younger shaman, that essentially lived and ate with us and spent time with us the entire time. So him and I had many conversations one-to-one or even you know one-to-four and I was able to ask questions and say, well, how do I connect to my inner child? Because connecting to my inner child was very foreign to me at the time. How do I connect to my ego and not kill it necessarily like many people talk about, but connect with it and understand that we are one and the same and we can work together instead of working against each other. 
So things of that nature, and that helped me tremendously. So the ceremonies themselves, so the ayahuasca one started like 6.30 at night, lasted till about 3 in the morning. Then the next day would be recovery. You would talk to people. There would be a group talk to go over your journey and what happened. Whoever, whoever was comfortable sharing. And then, of course, you had time to walk in nature, to do anything you wanted, yoga, meditation, you name it. And those are important times because you could really see what, what happened because I was aware of what happened the entire time, right? So I could remember everything that happened and kind of try to decipher it and understand what has gone on. So what were the most critical things that you pulled out of these journeys, do you think? Uh, the big one is around love and the fact that the answer is love. And I, especially with St. Pedro, St. Pedro is a type of medicine that unlike ayahuasca doesn't necessarily give you visions for most people, doesn't make you sick. Again, for most people, but it enhances all your senses. And what I'm saying is it's smell, vision, but more importantly, your feelings, like the, your sense of feelings. I've never in my life felt so many emotions of those around me like I did in those ceremonies. And I had St. Pedro in three of the ceremonies and Ayahuasca in three of them because there was a bit of an overlap in one. Realizing how connected we are and how much we can feel if we open our eyes, our mind, our, our heart was very new to me because I went into this retreat with an open mind, but skeptical because I have a mathematics degree. I have a science background. So for me, this was a bit uncomfortable, but again, I have an open mind and that's how I went in. Well, you can be a Renaissance man, right? <laughs> you can be a man of the arts, the sciences, everything. Exactly. Exactly. You can absolutely. And you, should, you know, everyone should aim to be whatever they see in their heart. And you asked me about transformations, right? Not only were my transformations profound, I, I came as back as a different man, at least in my mind and my spirit. But I've seen transformations in people that have gone on these journeys that I could not possibly explain. And nor did I want to. I'm like, I believe it now. And I'll give you an example. A very dear friend of mine in her 50s. And I, when I say dear friend, I just met her dad and we became friends. And she spent... I believe like 10 days plus in the ICU with COVID prior to coming on this retreat. She died. She almost died multiple times. She lost hair. She lost mobility because of being in the ICU and incubated. And I remember the first day, her and I, her, she was walking very slowly as they were showing us around the campgrounds. And it was up a hill, right? So you had to climb up quite a bit. And I kind of hung back with her and we were chatting and she went through one of the most transformational journeys I've ever experienced in my life to the point that about seven days later, she was playing soccer with us on the field. And I'm not just saying like just walking and kicking the ball. I'm not saying like running things that she couldn't possibly do the, you know, seven days before. I was like, how is that possible? And there's many examples of these beautiful transformations, but also some examples of people that got very little out of it because they had a closed mind or they had intentions and they were sticking so hard to the intentions and not allowing the medicine to show them what they need to see before their intentions can be realized. But those are the exceptions, not at all. I can well imagine that there are some people that probably had some traumatic experiences earlier in their lives, and maybe they were too afraid that this drug would open up some understanding of that. And some, for some people, it's too scary to go into that territory. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I, I didn't tell you this uh, yet, but I was scared as well to take more of the medicine. So I mentioned that they give you medicine three times, especially ayahuasca and St. Pedro. And with ayahuasca, because my experience as soon as I took one cup was fairly strong, I was very reluctant to take cup two or cup three. 
there were some people that went into two cups, three cups, some took even more, but the shamans all did three cups and they would do multiple ceremonies a week. I would say that's, for example, why part of my journey wasn't as strong because I wanted something lighter for it to be more gentle with me at the beginning. And that was my choice. In my last ceremony, I had the choice to take more, but again, I was like on the fence. So I let I let fear win the time and I stayed with one cup. But even through that, I got so much out of it. With St. Pedro, because it's a different type of medicine, I actually did take all three cups of it. So it's kind of like spread out by an hour and a half or so. It Of course, it builds on itself, right? Because you have now more medicine in you. So it builds on what you've experienced. So are you going to do this again? Or do you think you've actually achieved what you wanted to achieve with it? That's a great story. I The way I see it is I've barely scratched the surface. However, that doesn't mean that plant medicine is the answer for me to continue to connect to my higher self, to the universe, or anyone else that I want to connect with. Because I've come to understand how you can do it through spiritual practices. So you have a solid spiritual foundation, and you put practices in, you can see similar things. You can connect. I'll give you an example. I did a hypnotherapy session for the first time in my life two weeks ago. And the lady I did with, amazing person, she put me in a trance. And this was done over Zoom, like you and I are talking right now. I had visions similar to the visions I had when I was in the medicine. And I was fully sober, right? Because that's how you are when you do hypnotherapy. We went back into my childhood. I was able to heal some past trauma that I didn't even know existed to love and heal my, my inner child at various stages. So what I'm trying to say is that plant medicine is not the only answer. It could be an answer for you or others. But there's also many other tools to, for you to, to leverage to get to that, to that enlightenment, to that connection, to, to the understanding. And I guess to answer your question, yes, I will like to, to continue on the path of plant medicine. I just don't know how that looks like yet. Well, it sounds like it's a way of opening the door for you just to adopt a new lifestyle in general. You know, it can give you enough realization where, okay, you're going to get into some other stuff, try other things. And so it's like a... <laughs> it's a gateway drug to life, you know, to living a better life. So, oh my God, yes. And most, as I said, like I would say, like 95% of the people that felt the same way. And again, some people had bigger transformations than others. And I would like to add this when we talk about plant medicine. One thing I didn't realize in all the research I've done and in that moment, how important the integration piece is. And they were talking about how the real work starts when you get home. And that's what I found in my research ahead of time. But there's very little content, or at least at the time, a year or so ago, on how to properly integrate, how to properly absorb all of this knowledge and understanding you've got and apply it to the real world. Because I came back, I was on cloud nine. I changed a lot. I'm like, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to make all these big changes in my life, but also in the life of others. And then, of course, no one else changed. Not the people I worked with, not my partner, not my friends, my parents. And that reality came down hard on me. And that actually put me on a depressive path for probably seven months. And I've never been depressed in my life. Didn't realize what was happening at the beginning. But in hindsight, that was one of the best things that could have happened to me because it is essentially a continuation of my journey of spiritual awakening. Because now in being on this path, I got to see with myself a lot more than I ever wanted to. I got to allow emotions and ideas and, and downloads and synchronicities to actually show up in my life that before I was ignoring. And even though it was such a tough time of my life, I cannot be more grateful for it because it, it allowed me to learn so much and make so much progress. Yeah, I think that's kind of the problem with retreats is 
I, I met somebody not too long ago, a couple of years ago, and he was always like getting away from his job and going on retreats. And so his job was like this thing he suffered through. And then he would always have like a retreat every few months just to recover from the few months of working. And then he would live from like one retreat to another. And it's like, somehow you have to integrate this into your life. You can't just always go on retreats to feel like you're really living or really happy. It made me feel sad for him because it's like he couldn't seem to change his life in between the retreats. So he was kind of missing the point in a way. He was enjoying the retreats, but not really learning anything from them. Wow. What an important message there, Evie. And I agree with you 100%. And I've, I've met some of those people as well at this retreat. And I almost fell in the same trap myself because I took three weeks off work to go to Ecuador and I, I visited the bed and I did a 12-day retreat. And when I came back, all I could think about is, oh, I want to go back. I want to go back. And I want to relieve those highs. And, you know, that's kind of the, the drug aspect of it that speaks to you, right? And this idea that you experience something so amazing, that how can you live your life the way it was? And you want to keep chasing that. But what I've realized right now is that, like you said, you've got to do the integration. You've got to sit down and understand what are the messages, but how can you turn your life around so you can have similar experiences without the need of a third party like ayahuasca in this case, or having to travel for like two days to get to a destination? Yeah. And if we're all about connection, it's great that you met all these people on this trip and they're meaningful and you're still connecting with them. But it's like, you also have to kind of translate that to where you're living and hopefully finding some people there that you can have that deep relationship with too, like in Nova Scotia. Absolutely. And I've, that's exactly what this allowed me to do is allow me to connect with certain people now on a deeper level. And some people were put off about my transformation, the journey I'm on. And that's fine as well. There's uh, the thunder going in behind me. So I, I Oh, is start... that the thunder? I thought that was your yeah. microphone. <laughs> no, no. Been, for whatever reason, for the last five minutes, it keeps, I see the lightning and then I know the thunder is going to follow. So it was like, anyway, yes. But here's the beauty of it though, Evie. I, w- I would argue that, yes, I want to have people like that close to me. And I sometimes miss having a bigger network close to me. And I haven't been able to find those people yet. But because we have the internet, because we can have conversation like you and I are having right now, I can still connect with those friends that I made and my friends from Ontario and friends from Romania and Europe just as nicely over Zoom, over Google Meet, Teams, you name it. Again, it's not the same. It's not going to replace it. But for those of us that don't have access to people in our media community, let's find it online. Let's find it somewhere else. Yeah, that's not a bad idea at all. I would say just use whatever means you can to foster those connections because it keeps you going. It keeps you happy to meet people. I mean, this podcast has been a great boon for me, even you know, outside of the pandemic. It's nice to connect with people from other parts of the world, living in other parts of the world. It's just so cool. And it's such a powerful way to understand that there's so many good people around the world that are kind of on this path of uh, evolution, personal evolution. Exactly, exactly. And not only that, but it shouldn't, like borders and distances shouldn't be stopping us from connecting with others. And if I've realized anything from this journey is that we're all connected in some way, not just me and you, Evie, every human being, every living thing on this planet, Mother Earth. And if the lady Amy that I mentioned to you was able to hypnotize me over Zoom and have such a deep, not only connection, but deep journey. And she was far away in the States. I'm in Canada. Like what else is possible? Like distance shouldn't be a factor anymore. 
right? Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't move closer to where you can foster those relationships if you can foster them in your community, but you should have no excuse to say, you know what, I don't have any friends that understand me. I don't have anyone that I can speak to. Try to find those people online. Yeah, there's so many people that I think are a little bit lonely and would love to take these steps to move closer to other people. And you have to have the courage to do it. It's you know, you can't be too introverted. You have to break the introversion cycle, I think. I was pretty introverted when I was younger. I think I'm less introverted now. But having said that, you know, I still could do more social things than I do presently. So, you know, it's a work in progress. You have to keep pushing yourself. It is more comfortable to stay at home and watch a TV series <laughs> sometimes. And these are the habits what that we have to break sometimes. I think this habit of just staying home and wondering what we could be doing, but not really pursuing it. You have to take action. Yeah, I, I love that. You have to take action. It starts with awareness, being aware that whatever behavior you're doing right now is not for your best, right? It's not for your higher good. And if you're aware of that, then you can have a choice. Okay, I'm going to make a choice to, to change this, or I'm going to decide to continue on this path. And that's fine. For example, in my case, one of the things that I ignored more than I should have in recent years was my weight and what I've eaten because I put more emphasis on, let's say, my job or some other parts of my life. And now I've realized how I cannot have or I cannot grow spiritually, mentally, emotionally without really also taking care of my physical side. So I began the journey a while back and I'm still on it. And we're all going to be on different journeys like this. And it's about finding that balance, realizing that it's okay sometimes to sit on the couch and watch TV, but also you should work on yourself. And there are many parts of oneself that we can work on. And at the same time, what you said about introverted and extroverted, I was very introverted growing up as well. But what I've realized is I have both aspects within me. Like I cannot socialize for two weeks straight, like every day. I need some alone time. And that's the introverted side of me, the independent side of me. I feel that way too. I feel like I can be pretty outgoing and I do love parties, but I don't want to go to a party every night. That would be too taxing on me. <laughs> um, and we've all been there to some degree, right? Like we've all done that where we're doing it to please someone else. We're doing it because that's what everyone is doing. Instead of realizing that, wait a second, I am my own person. I can make choices. And if I don't agree with something, I can stop doing it. Right. So how do you harmonize the science and math with the spirit side? That's a great question. I mean, to me right now, after being on this retreat and seeing all the amazing things that happened to me and others, I believe that I believe in anything, meaning that I understand now that everything is energy first. I understand that there's frequencies that we work with and we each resonate at different frequencies and we attract different things based on that. And some of these things are proven by science. So I've gone down the path where I looked at some of the science behind it. And of course, some of the things are still to be proven. But just like, for example, I don't need to prove gravity every time or see gravity to know it's there and it exists. I don't have to necessarily prove myself that a connection between you and I exists and a connection between me and my dogs or me and nature exists, right? That, that's something that now I feel deep down within me or a connection to my heart, a connection to my higher self. Those are things that I got to experience. And in my mind, nothing beats experience. Like you can show me all the scientific papers on this. They may not go down this path because there's no way to prove this yet, but I know how I felt and no one can take away that from me. So that's how I combine those, right? There's always going to be ways to prove it, but also ways to disprove it if you really, if that's what you're looking for. 
the concept of God is not really opposed to math anyway. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, you know, geometry and symmetry and everything that we're looking at and dealing with from day to day. And, you know, God is a vague concept to me. I feel like it's a vague concept. It could be anything. It could be an old man with an hourglass as depicted in paintings a long time ago. It could be just a brilliant flash of energy that's overwhelming to us. It could be so many different things. It's like, I don't even really want to quantify it because I feel like that would be probably just reducing it to something that it's not. And I think that if those of us who are more intelligent and, you know, I'm no genius, but if those of us who are more intelligent can pick up on subtle energies and stuff like that, a higher being, a, a more developed being could pick up on even more. You know, we're trapped in, in bodies that have their limits. So I think that we have to realize that, that um, we're afraid of a lot of things and we're afraid even to understand other ideas because it somehow threatens us. So I'd rather stay open-minded rather than close-minded. I know that there's got to be higher intelligences. Forget about God. You know, sometimes I just feel like saying, forget about God. It trips people up. It makes people confused. It makes people think, well, is it the Islamic God or is it one of the Hindu gods or is it the Christian God? Who cares? It doesn't really matter. Stop trying to quantify it, but just try to tune into the fact that there might be more intelligent spirits out there, energies, whatever you want to call them. Absolutely. I agree with you, Evie. And what I come to understand as well is that you may call it God, I may call it universe, I may call it my higher self. At the end of the day, it doesn't even matter what you call something. It's what you do with that information and how you use it. So if I say I have a connection to God or a connection to my higher self or to the universe, what does that mean to me? And if I call it God and you call it the universe or vice versa, it shouldn't divide us. It shouldn't make us hate each other. It shouldn't make us not be friends, right? Which is what's happening in the world most of the time. What I've come to realize in speaking to brilliant people that have done the research and in then, of course, looking at it myself, is that all religions started from one religion many, many thousands of years ago. And of course, as people wanted to control things, they started to create their own versions of the religion. They started to put maybe a name behind the God. There was supposed to be just one God for everyone. Like It's just one, the universe, God, again, whatever you want to believe in. But then as wars happened and people happened and we wanted to control, right? If you look at how Christianity evolved, right? It's all about control. It's all about acquiring more things, doing more things, right? It doesn't negate all the good aspects of it, though, which I think is something that people forget of. Because the idea of community, the idea of love, that religion can foster, right? Those are all valid. Now, of course, there's negatives as well. So it's what do you want to focus on? Do you want to take the negatives only? Sure. Then if you take negatives in your life across all the people, you're not going to have friends. You're not going to have people you love. You're going to always be living out of fear. But if you go from the love side, which is what I'm trying to do nowadays, it's like, I understand that that's who you believe in and that's your choice. It's not for me to change that for you, right? It's not for me to tell you you're wrong. We all have our own path. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can see the love in people. I really, I noticed that on the podcast. I'm not really a big fan of Christianity anymore, but I really connect with people who are kind of like Jesus freaks, but without the religion, right? I connect with those people, that sort of hippie spirit, like they want to love people and want to see the light in people. 
without getting all caught up in the entanglements of dogma and religion. And that's, that's what I love to see in people. And it's not just about Jesus or anything. It's just about whether it's Krishna or whatever, whatever motivates you, whatever spirit inspires you. If you share that light and love with other people and you stop putting up all these divisions, that's the goal probably. Exactly. Absolutely. I'm with you hundred percent. And it's all the labels we apply to things, right? That's causing this. And that's yeah. has done it over the thousands of years. It's been around, right? Because again, there's so many people that have lived in those times and had access to, let's say, the Bible or the Quran to make changes, to to adjust things, to feed their own needs or to feed their whatever society they were in needs, right? To to have a reason to conquer part of the world or to go for more money or less money, whatever the case may be, right? It's about power. The people in power molded and shaped the religions to their benefit, usually. Okay. So. so that's why that's a label, right? That's a, I call them all a label. So the people you mentioned, the hippies that are all about love, that's what I would classify myself as right now. It's like I'm not religious. I am spiritual. I know that I am connected to all things. I know that there's a purpose of this life. And I have found at least part of mine. And I also know that the love is the answer. And love, I mean, that sounds fancy, right? It's just, oh, what's love? It's not, I'm not talking about relationship love. I'm talking about you coming from a place of love, from compassion, empathy, not always thinking the worst of people or situations as soon as they happen or as soon as you miss someone and coming from the place where you can be a better version of yourself so you can help others be a better version of themselves as well and live a joyful life. That is beautifully said. So thank you so much for coming on, Constantine. And we will put a link in the show notes for this episode for your mentoring services, which you offer, correct? Yes. So there's no formal program. What I do is everyone, anyone that wants to talk to me, feel free to message me on LinkedIn under Constantine Bormorun. I chat with people. I mentor people through my work, to my professional life. I mean, uh, in my uh, tech job and also people in my life, right? People I meet through the podcast, through conversations with you otherwise. Keep going. I mean, you're going to learn even more and you don't even need ayahuasca, so. <laughs> exactly. That's, uh, that's the point, right? To, to continue learning and growing as a human being and enjoying the journey, which is what I've been doing every day since my awakening. Blessed listener, please leave your questions or comments at disembodiedpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening.